1: Oh, ladies and gentlemen,
0: can I please have your attention? Can you
1: <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and uh, dispatch.com. Uh, go to the to find out what was really inside the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Uh, today, we have a return, possibly the fastest turnaround uh, for a return guest in the, in the thousands of years that this podcast has been around. Um, I'm excited to have him back. Uh, We're going to try and cover new ground. Uh, so uh, be watchful for it. We have uh, Matt Ridley author of How Innovation Works. Did I say it correctly? You did. Okay. And uh, delighted to have you back. Uh, How goes the book tour?
0: It's going great. And it's a real honor to be back on so quickly. Thank you so much. You may notice that I've cut my beard off since I was last on the show. Um,
1: I've trimmed mine uh, so you wouldn't feel like you're being interviewed twice by Ted Kaczynski. Um, (laughs) And... uh, And also because the neighborhood children were starting to pedal away really fast when they saw me emerge from my house. So, So, um, listeners who heard this last time know that you have this book about how innovation works, where innovation comes from. You're the guy who came up with this idea that ideas have sex and that's how they spread around and create new things. We're going to talk about all that, but I wanted to sort of skip ahead just for two seconds. Um, in the book, you write about how Peter Thiel said that um, the reason why the computer world got so advanced or the internet world got so advanced is that we, we, we what's the phrase? We regulate atoms, but we uh, don't regulate data. Was that C- correct?
0: Word? Yeah, basically. Yeah. We, we, we're very permissive about innovation in bits. Um, you know, if, if you want to start set up a startup doing something online, digital, um, you know, a new website or something, there's very few permits you need to get. And right. that's the result of a specific piece of very permissive legislation that the Clinton administration brought in in the, in the 1990s, um, which sort of basically unleashed e-commerce. It, it's a very nice example of government doing something that actually does encourage innovation. Um But he compares that with, you know, if you want to invent a new drug or a new medical device or something like that, you have to get an enormous amount of permission. It costs you an enormous amount of money. And more importantly, it costs you an enormous amount of time. And so he's saying that that we are redirecting the energies of entrepreneurs towards digital innovation rather than uh, physical innovation. Uh, And that may be a problem in the long run. Right. So I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to ask
1: you if you've heard this story. Do you know who John Nestor was? Oh,
0: I've heard the name, but no, I can't remember.
1: Yeah, so he gave rise to the, the, the phrase nestering. And so the story goes, you'll probably, you had to have heard this at some point, um, but listeners will like it. Um, at one point, DC area um, traffic experts couldn't figure out why uh, traffic was slowing down as much as it was at a certain time of day, every single day during the work week. And uh, they figured out, that there was one person who was just driving at just at the speed limit in the left lane every day at rush hour. And it screwed up everything. Cause in, you know, here in America, the left lanes for the passing lane, you go fast. And he ended so Nestor ended up writing a letter to the editor to the Washington post after the, the story came out and he said, yeah, it's me. Why? And he says, why should I inconvenience myself for someone who wants to speed the left lane is quicker. I'm going the legal limit there's no problem now the beauty of this is that Nestor turned out to be a uh, official a regulator at the Food and Drug Administration and um, he had the exact same attitude, if not worse, about uh, permitting new f- uh, drugs and whatnot and uh, he actually uh, was transferred out of his division because he had approved no new chemical entities from 1968 to 1972, um, <laughs> and and he basically wouldn't approve anything and he did everything as slowly as possible and all the rest, which made him a pri- made him a hero to Ralph Nader and all those groups that you know he protected right. us from the evils of innovation and all of these kinds of things. Right. Um, and so, I, I guess so. The first question is is um, how do you prevent nestering in a large bureaucratic state operation and then i have some follow up questions yeah
0: well i think it's the, the it's it's a big issue and i've just just written an article recently that uh, directed at the british government saying one thing you need to look at if you want to unleash growth and innovation uh, after this uh, epidemic uh, is to speed up bureaucratic decisions um, right. and i make the case in that article that it's not that bureaucrats say no to things, it's that they take an age to say yes, that's the real problem. I've got a lovely, tiny little example of this myself, which is, um, there's, a, there's a river near here where I have a little bit of fishing rights, and there's other angling clubs that have fishing rights to the salmon that run up these, this river. And there was a, an old fish pass that enabled the fish to get past a dam, on one bank of the river, but it had been closed years ago because people kept poaching it. Um, and there's another fish pass on the other bank, but it doesn't really work because it goes through a waterworks. So the, so the question was, can we reopen this old fish pass? And we asked the water company and they said, "Mm, go ahead, no problem for us. So we asked the environment agency, which regulates rivers, you wouldn't mind if we just reopened this fish pass, would you just, just take a matter of digging it out and letting the water flow through it. And, um, and they said, oh, wait a second, that'll have to go to our Water Abstraction Committee. We said, <laughs> we're not abstracting the water, we're just taking it out and putting it back in again about 10 yards further downstream, you know, and it's only a 10% of the water or something. No, no, it's still got to go to that committee. Well, you know, how do we, how do we apply to that committee? Well, it only meets twice a year. Right, okay, and its next meeting's not till June, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, the Water Abstraction Committee eventually came back and said actually you know what you're putting the water back in so it's no problem it's not for us that's that it doesn't come under our jurisdiction you shouldn't have come to us we said right that's what we said at the first time can we now <laughs> uh, have permission and they said well let's talk to our fish pass committee oh you, you mean you have one of those you know etc <laughs> fish pass committee took another three months and said oh, do you know what in the end we can't think of a reason to say no so we said, is that a yes? <laughs> and they, they said, um, well, temporary. Yeah, do it Do it for a week or two and we'll see if it works. So, uh, um, you know, go ahead, make a plan to do it. So I called up the uh, angling club and I said, Saturday afternoon, I'll bring the sandwiches, somebody bring a digger, um, everyone else bring a spade and a pickaxe. We got down there. We, four hours, we did it. We had water flowing through. And as we walked away, the sea trout were starting to run up. You could see them skittling through the, the pass. And um, then I got a call from the Environment Agency saying, have you come up with your plan for opening the fish pass yet? And I said, <laughs> well, we did it on Saturday. And they said, what? Well, we've opened it. It's working. What? Well, we thought it was a million-pound project. We thought you were going to have to raise the money. And I said, well, if you'd been doing it, it would have been a million-pound project. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, I mean, sorry, this is a trivial example. And it's not, no, no, I love this kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 the, the degree to which public bureaucracies particularly, but sometimes private ones too, um, uh, r- are actually rewarded by delaying things, by not taking decisions. Uh, you know, if you don't take the decision Maybe you can pass it on to your successor and you're not responsible. Um, If you do take the decision, suddenly you're in the frame if it goes wrong. Um, Whereas the entrepreneur, it's the exact opposite incentive. The longer it takes to take the decision, the more problem he has getting money off his investors or whatever. Yeah, Maya, I'm sorry, go on. Something like um, two to five years to get a new medical device approved in most countries in the world. It's quicker in, in the US than it is in Europe but it's still a long time. And that's too long for most entrepreneurs. And as a result, they didn't invent p- point of care, rapid diagnostic DNA tests for viruses right. over the last 10 years, for example. you right. know we, we don't know that for sure, but we can be pretty well certain that, that there's an awful lot of unseen stuff never got done because of the slowness of bureaucratic decisions. And of course, this is where China scores, because if you want to, I mean, my wife was in China just before uh, Wuhan blew up and she didn't go to Wuhan, thankfully, but but last fall she was in China and she was visiting research labs and she talked to somebody who had had an idea for a new kind of experiment in his university lab and had literally built the lab and done it in about a month, um, whereas she'd have had to apply for sure. you know, all sorts of permits and research grants and so on. Um, so she said, that's why they're able to do so much is because the speed at which they can, um, they can take decisions.
1: Yeah. So, uh, one quick anecdote, and then I have a question for that. Um, my dad was in the military in Japan, uh, right uh, shortly after world war II, around the time of the Korean war. And he had some fascinating stories. You would have loved to ask him about it because his job was to, take was a survey taker for post-World War II, uh, in, um, industrial growth in Japan. And he went to all these little companies like Sony, <laughs> you know, and asked them questions, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, his That's commanding awesome. offer, his commanding officer was black, was African-American, which, you know, this had to be within a year of desegregation of the army to have a black commanding officer was really a, sort of unusual. And, uh, And so he was clearly a good bureaucratic political player. And he once said to my dad, Goldberg, it is always better to be on the committee that says this must never happen again. (laughs) And And for a bureaucratic mindset, that's actually kind of brilliant, right? Is you're never responsible for the mistake, but you get to come in and, and criticize the people who made it. Um, anyway, so so I, the reason why I brought up the the Peter Thiel thing and the uh, you know data not uh, Adams stuff and all that is that I, philosophically I agree with you um, about the need for innovation and government should get out of the way of innovation. You know, I'm a big, I'm a pretty passionate believer that you know we don't get. Uh, modern society without you know the, the, the Deirdre McCloskey argument that mm-hmm. the change in attitudes towards innovation and I know you have some disagreements with her mm. but they're they're but your disagreements are sort of second order and just that that absolutely you which know, no, came no. first no. I mean, she, thing.
0: Right? She's she's a leading genius in this area. Yeah. But um so the question I have though is if if China has
1: uh, a much more open and congenial environment for innovation. How come they're not inventing jetpacks either? Right. I mean, how mm-hmm. come their stuff is still, as far as I can tell, lab innovation and not cool, new super fast spaceships and, and, uh, And jetpacks, because I want jetpacks. That's what I've wanted for a long time now. So, you see what I'm saying? Is that yeah? I'm wondering if there's another if there's another limit to the material, physical, the big machine inventions that we haven't seen for a long time, other than just the regulatory environment.
0: Yes, and I think there is. And I mean, I I write in my book, and I may have talked to the about to you about this before in the previous episode. Uh, about how we had this incredible burst of transport invita- in, in, innovations in the first half of the 20th century and an right. incredible burst of communication innovations in the second half of the 20th century. And I don't believe that that switchover was because government suddenly made it much harder to um, develop innovations in transport. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran up against some kind of limits. You know, the 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 uh, efficiency of a jet plane flying at twice the speed of sound is very low. It burns a hell of a lot more fuel, etc. So it just doesn't make sense to do commercial flights at supersonic speeds unless you can hop into space, and that's a step too far for most technologies uh, and that kind of thing. And, and the, the, I, th- I suspect something similar applies to the personal jetpack. Um, uh, I mean, I can point you to areas which have been starved of innovation because of rules and regs, nuclear being a very good example, mm-hmm. uh, that we, we we wrote the rules and regs in such a way that you have to pre-specify your design in enormous detail in advance, which, of course, prevents you from trying anything new. Um, uh, you take eight years and $100 million to get through the regulatory process. You're not going to uh, say, and by the way, here's a new screw we're going to try right. <laughs> towards the end of building the, the power plant. Um, uh, so that cuts you off from novelty. The, the, the question is, is China developing the sorts of new materials, new devices, new power plants, et cetera, that, that its system will allow it to do? Um, and that'll be a very interesting question because you're quite right. So far, the the way China has become an innovation engine from the world for the world has been by developing you know wechat and uh, alibaba and all this kind of thing in other words it's just simply done the whole digital thing even better than we've been doing in in the west i suspect that may be changing i suspect the the the, the issue is partly that uh, china was in catch up for a long time it was simply emulating our technologies and it wasn't trying to bust through into new technologies. But if it were to do uh, thorium reactors, molten salt reactors, molten metal reactors, fusion reactors, if it were to get some of those going in the power plant area, um, uh, then it might start to do much more atom innovation and much less bit innovation than we're doing. But you're right, it's a slight corrective to the Peter Thiel view of the world to note that China doesn't seem to be able to, to invent personal jetpacks either. Um, and it will be interesting to see whether they do in the years ahead. So I guess my answer is like in Lies about the French Revolution. It's too <laughs> early to tell.
1: Although I, I've used that for years and then somebody said, he may not have said it, it was a bad translation. So uh, just forewarned. Um, but I love That's, the and Enlai thing.
0: Thank you. That's helpful. <laughs>
1: um, uh because I, so one of the things that I really like about the book um, and your argument is, and we talked about this a bit last time, is that innovation is more important than invention because it, it there's a there's a very Hayekian thing going on here, right? And that there's um, that the innovator doesn't actually necessarily need to know how all the inventions work. He just need he or she just needs to know how to put new elements together in innovative ways that bring a better product or more a greater efficiency or whatever to bear. It's sort of like, um, the Jeff Goldblum character from the fly who invents a teleportation device. And he says, look, I'm really basically just a systems manager. I don't know how most of this stuff works. I just go ask people to invent certain things and I put it all together and do this. Of course, then he turns into a giant fly, which is a problem, but, um, uh, it's quite a big one of the, yeah, well, you know, um, you know, except for that Mrs. Lincoln, you know, it's a great, great invention. And, but I guess, so one of the questions I had is, you know, so part of that is tinkering, right? Is that you're a big believer in tinkering and sort of just playing
0: with the stuff. Actually, just before you go on to that point, uh, uh-huh. Jonah, because I think you've, you've said something rather interesting there that ha- hadn't quite occurred to me before. When I'm making the distinction between the inventor and the innovator, I'm mainly talking about the the innovator being the person who drives down the price, drives up the reliability, drives up the availability of something. But I hadn't quite thought of it in terms of the innovator really doesn't need to know how it works. The inventor maybe does need to know how it works. Um, I think that's quite an interesting insight, which I don't think I've had. Um, it's a very
1: uh, Eye pencil point,
0: right? Yes, I mean it is absolutely. And I'm, yeah. you know, Eye pencil is my bible. Um, great essay, um, but I think it's a it's it's a, it's a nice point that that. The, the the first prototype is built by someone who really does understand the physics behind the thing. Right. Um whereas the uh the 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 guys who turn it into something useful just know that know it as a black box what goes in what comes out. Thank you for that. Oh sure. I I I will collect my royalty in
1: in in beers in England in one day. Okay. Um so uh but so the thing I've been thinking about is perhaps one of the artificial temporary limits that isn't, it doesn't have to do with regulation per se is that it is just much more difficult to be your sort of classic renaissance man today. You know, when uh, da Vinci did stuff, he, you know, his, his medical drawings, his engineering drawings there was an ability for the human brain to hold in its head the current state of knowledge in a whole bunch of different fields. Mm-hmm. Um, ben Franklin, you know, you get uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, they, yep. they, they were essayists and engineers at the same time. And it kind of feels to me, who's not smart enough in any field, um, that the complexity of these things makes that kind of Jack of all trades, master of none, tinkering, much more difficult. Could that be part of the limit to why we don't have JPEGs?
0: Yes, I think that is an issue. Um, too much specialization. There was, a, there was a, uh, a biography a few years ago of a British scientist, I guess you'd call him, from around 1800, whose name I think was Thomas Young, um, but the title of the book was the the last man who knew everything, hmm. which is a really nice title. And I can't I can't quite remember what it is that Thomas Young did or invented or discovered that that shows how he knew everything. But I think it was something to do with being both a brilliant archaeologist and a brilliant engineer and hmm. a very good physicist or something like that. Young slits may be named after him if you remember them in diffraction theory and physics. Okay, but the point that I can't quite remember what he did slightly makes the point doesn't it that already <laughs> that already yeah. it was um uh, it was too late um to um uh to to do that kind of thing um you know that 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 the ability to to see everything was slipping away i mean Leonardo is such a um uh, a sort of standout person mm. that he looks uh, exceptional even in his own era, I suspect, but it, it surely is true that, I mean, every now and then you meet somebody who, who has a, uh, Jared Diamond is, is quite a nice example, a very, very fine writer who Mm -hmm. also, um, discovered new bird species or rediscovered them in New Guinea and wrote very interesting articles about the, the ecology of New Guinea. Um, but his day job was physiology for most of his career. You know, it was in a lab somewhere. I mean, these are extraordinary achievements for anyone, and he combined three careers. But I suspect it got too much for him in the end, and I think he gave up the day job uh, finally. Yeah, I mean, if, if if I had a lab day job and I
1: wrote several international bestsellers, I I might go the same way. But, um uh But the the reason why I find this kind of worrisome, I mean, uh, how to put this in, I remember when Charles Murray came out with his book, Human Accomplishment, I went to a a dinner to celebrate it. And um, the conversation with Irving Kristol, Charles Krauthammer, and a bunch of people that I had no business being at the same table with, um, basically turn to the fact that it's going to be very difficult to have um, many Nobel Prize winning ideas go to the developed world, uh, come f- coming from the developed world, simply because the state of science is at a place where um, you can't have one guy with a legal pad and a pencil coming up with some new theorem that changes the world mm-hmm. anymore. You need superconducting super colliders and all of these very expensive things and it's so much more collaborative than it used to be that individual genius can't break through the noise. And it feels like if that's true, I mean, there are all sorts of interesting political consequences that come from that, but there's also just the sense that we may be at a plateau for, um, the kind of non-digital innovation yep. or not non-medical innovation. Cause I think playing with genes is sort of the same principle. Um, for a good long while,
0: yeah, I I, I I think that may be true, but I suspect we're underestimating the degree to which that was true in the past. So if you go back to uh, the, you know 18th century London or uh, 16th century Italy um, or 17th century Holland, you would find in that place that the people who were doing the incredible discovering and inventing were unbelievably well networked um mm. they were talking to lots of other clever people uh, they were corresponding overseas etc etc um and and if you weren't in one of those places you would say it's just no good i just can't get um, the, the access to the kind of network that i need the royal society of london or whatever it might be um to be able to develop stuff um, uh, and th- because because it's always been true that innovation hasn't been a global phenomenon, that it's been very localized at any one time. You know, whether it's Ming, uh, not Ming China, Song China, a thousand years ago, or uh, the uh, Arabian Empire a little bit before that, uh, or the Indian stuff, uh, you know, in 500 BC, or the ancient Greece in between those two times. Um... There's always been one part of the world that's been the main motor of innovation, and it's a surprisingly small part of the world. arguably it's 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 a bay on the west coast of America for the last fifty years. You know, that's mm-hmm. a pretty amazing thought when you think about it. Of course, that's exaggerating. You know, other places sure. achieve things too. but um, uh, uh, that implies, that there's always been a barrier to doing this stuff if you're not part of the the the, the key network where the ideas are being shared and the thoughts and uh, and and the, the st- or 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 just go back 100 years to um a story I do write about in the book which is Fritz Haber and Otto Bosch inventing the uh, nitrogen fixation process that gave us fertilizers but also gave us explosives um and that is a a a long piece of hard grind industrial development rather than research once they've Mm. got the idea uh, that is incredibly difficult because they've got to do these reactions at enormously high pressures and enormously high temperatures and none of the materials they have can cope with it But the reason they can crack the problem is because they're sitting right next to some of the most advanced steel makers in the world and some of the most advanced armament makers, etc. So they're drawing upon a network of German industries uh, around 1910 um, that that other people don't have. Um, And so you'd say then the time has gone when a talented individual amateur can make a difference – this is the future. It's hundreds and hundreds of German people in a giant factory doing thousands of experiments with uh, enormous amounts of money. This was probably, by the way, the biggest industrial research project before the Manhattan Project, um, uh, and so on. So I think it's, it's been true for a longer time than we think yeah, that the individual hasn't been able to make much of a contribution. And, of course, part of my argument is that this is always a much more collaborative process than we recognise
1: and I guess you could make the case that in a world that is now so connected digitally, you know, where you can have, you can be in on conversations from 10,000 miles away through YouTube and whatever, that you actually are networking more people than ever before, just in a different way than we not traditionally conceive of. It.
0: Yes. I, and I, I, I do think that's the case. And you do hear about you know, somebody in Shanghai having a conversation with someone in San Francisco and quite quickly going into production. And after all, a lot of the digital stuff that's come about in recent years hasn't required that much capital. It hasn't mm-hmm. actually been that big a project. You know, I mean, the invention of Facebook didn't really need anything other than a garage and a, uh, uh, and a few friends. Um And so you can make the case that we've actually gone back a bit to the talented individual making a difference um, today because of the network effect. Um, uh, just back to the point, though, about um, whether or not you can get uh, uh, sort of polymathic contributors, um, there's a very nice little thing that I've dug up recently. That There's a site called Incentive where big firms or other organizations can post a problem on a a website and invite solutions from people. And uh, there's a way of sharing the rewards if the solution turns out to be a good one. Uh, And a study of that site has found that most of the solutions came from unexpected fields. They didn't come from people who were already within the field, which is very nice. That's telling us the serendipity point about innovation. Yeah. But it does slightly imply that that's what we may be missing um, in most of the innovation departments of big firms and so on, is that the, the, you haven't got the chance for the linguist to have a conversation with the um, engineer or something weird like that. I, mean, my, I often, you know, my favorite example of ideas having sex is the invention of the pill camera, which is a pill that you take with an hmm. electronic camera inside. and uh, it came about i don 't think it 's been a very successful in- invention, but it was quite a neat idea. It came about after a conversation over a garden fence between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer it 's <laughs> <That's> a lovely <laughs> example i think of, of, of these two things coming together yeah i
1: i I once talked to an engineer who said that the 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 field was being done enormous harm by the um the emphasis on formal test taking and the sort of rigid kind of stuff that, uh, elite schools, want. he said, it used to be that you could, some weird, some weird quirky kid could get into one of these places by just showing, Hey, look, I invented this thing or whatever. And you would get mm-hmm. stranger people. It's also like, um, if you look at the public intellectual, a lot of the public intellectuals that are sort of my guiding lights, in sort of in conservative affairs, uh, they got their PhDs just by writing a book and, and submitted it. And, you know, they didn't, and the, the meritocracy creates the kinds of people that are really good at doing the things the bureaucracy wants them to do, which is different than actually being creative thinkers. I mean, should we have, for example, uh, just, just a huge number of prizes for, Cool inventions. You know, Napoleon gets us canned goods by just saying, you know, come up with something and, you know, I'll give you 12,000 francs to do it. Shouldn't we just, and there's longitude and all that. Wouldn't it be Is that one way we can just sort of bypass the gatekeeper problem, the nestering problem?
0: Absolutely. You can also bypass the intellectual property problem there, which is, I think, a huge problem, the degree to Mm -hmm. which patents and copyrights are actually hindrances to innovations. They're toll booths, they're patent thickets, they're Trolls, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think that's a, a much bigger problem than we've appreciated. And um, there's a there's a there's a very smart young man called Anton House who's just recently been the historian at the Royal Society of Arts, which is the the, the sort of pro technology society that's been bubbling along in London for five hundred years or something. And um, arts, you know, it sounds like art, but actually it sure, means sure. manufacturing. Yeah. Um, and and he's just come out with a very nice essay saying we really should be using prizes more. And what I hadn't realized is that people have become smart about how the prize would work. Uh, Michael Kramer, the recent Nobel prize winner at MIT ha, has actually, actually he's at Harvard, sorry, has, has actually um, developed some of this idea where you don't just give a lump sum to somebody who invents a vaccine. Um, you know, you say, if anyone can invent a vaccine for pneumococcus, which is killing kids in the developing world at at a high rate, we'll give you millions and millions of dollars. Well, the problem with that is they might pocket the money and then not sell the vaccine or Mm -hmm. sell the vaccine at such a price that nobody can afford it. So what you do instead, and this is exactly what the Gates Foundation did in that very case, is you say, we'll give you an enormous reward if you invent this thing but it will be in the form of a contract to to manufacture and distribute them. It's Hmm. just that we'll subsidize the price at which you can sell them, uh, so that you can sell them cheaply, but you will actually make quite a lot of money out of doing it. And that resulted in three winners, apparently, um, uh, all of whom produced effective vaccines against this uh, disease. And it is they reckon by now it's saved 700,000 lives, which is quite a lot. Um, so yes, prizes, I think we need to, to think about them much more carefully. I I wasn't convinced of this until recently, because I, I I worried about the problem that a prize is, is just going to be gamed, you know, all the cronies are going to get together and make sure they give the prize to each other. And sooner, before you know where you are, it's not going to be going to a practical invention. It's going to be going to some esoteric thing done in a university where the chums of the people giving the award work. Um. But actually, I think if it's well designed and if it's in these kind of forms of advanced market contracts, um, then I think it can uh, actually do a lot of good. And, and it, could, it, it could go alongside buying out patents. That's another way in which government could spend money on innovation that would be quite effective. The, the patent on a lot of the key technologies behind 3D printing has recently expired about four years ago. And the consequence has been a dramatic drop in the price of three D printing, and a great flourishing of new uh, uh, applications and ideas in three D printing. The same happened with with Watt's steam engine patents when they expired, and and the French government, as long ago as the eighteen thirties, actually bought out Louis Daguerre's patent on photography, so as to make sure that everybody um, had a go at it. Uh, And so uh, I think both patent, both prizes. And the buying out of patents are quite smart ways for governments to, um, uh, encourage innovation and encourage it in an area where they know they want it to happen, but mm-hmm. not get into the habit of picking winners and thereby picking losers. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on the patent stuff. Um, my only concern about, you know, you, you raised the concern about cronies rewarding each other on the prizes side. How, my understanding, and obviously you know this far better than I do, that the big problem with patents is that people basically take out micro patents that are related to all sorts of manufacturing. And then they just, they get scooped up and bundled and they're used as extortion to keep up companies from improving their products without paying exorbitant royalties. Couldn't you have the same problem if the government's buying them up? I mean, you'd still have people... Yeah taking out these stupid patents on these things and saying, okay, now the government's going to pay, instead of extorting some private sector guy, I'm going to extort the government. It's still sort of the same problem, isn't it?
0: You're absolutely right, actually. Uh, and um, and again, Michael Kramer's thought about that and thought about ways in which um, the, the price of buying out patents could be set in such a way that the government being in the market to buy them out doesn't automatically result in in people gaming the system and you know applying for frivolous patents in the hope of being brought out no i think i think probably the most meaningful reform to the patent system is and, and alex tabarak thinks about this quite a lot uh is to to start splitting instead of it being so monolithic you know you you get one long patent
1: mm-hmm. or
0: nothing um you know, we want two-year patents, five-year patents, 10-year patents, 20-year patents, and the 20-year patents are really hard to get and, uh, you know, only given out in exceptional circumstances. Um, so it's to just give a little bit of a reward. Well, just to reform the system, you know, because if you went cold turkey from a patent system to a non-patent system, it would probably um, be very difficult. But if you, if you if you could just start to blur... The distinction, because there are there are, you know, most of the software industry doesn't bother with patents. I mean, by the time you've uh, started to get royalties in from the patent you've taken out on a piece of software, somebody's written another piece that goes around it anyway, so it's worthless. Um, So, so they don't even try. They just say the, the important thing is to be first into the new development, which is one of the reasons why software moves so much faster than than hardware.
1: All right. So I want to, uh, so just a little background. I, um, really liked talking to you last time and the thing that sort of drove me crazy is I didn't ask you about, uh, this, this thing that, uh, the physicist, uh, Richard Feynman had come up with, um, about, and I wrote about it recently for the site. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and, Basically, what happened was when Richard Feynman, who was the famous physicist, he was at Caltech, and Caltech was worried that they weren't getting enough kids majoring in physics, and so they asked Feynman to reinvent the curriculum, and he gave this very famous lecture, where he said, you know, think about a world in which there's been some horrible cataclysm, and humanity has basically been wiped out, and some other species or people, um, or beings, whatever take our place, and they have to start over from zero. And you can only leave them one sentence, one snippet survives from our civilization that would help them become more, that would help them save time advancing. Um, And the reason I bring this up is I listened to this horrible episode of Radiolab, a show that I actually like, um, because they, they, they basically went around and asked a whole bunch of different people what their one sentence was, And with very few exceptions, it sounded like they had just walked down the hall of a community college HR department and asked a bunch of, uh, you know, and there just happened to be a meeting of these sort of post, you know, the the postmodernists and the feminists and a few diversity officers. And it was just horrible. And I really wanted to know what, like, an engineer might say or a biologist or a theologian I mean, there are all sorts of people that I would love to hear from that would offer their one snippet and when I concluded last the last time Matt was on uh, I said oh my god one of the people I would really love to hear from is you so I sent you uh, the the Feynman hypothesis thing and uh, you said you would be happy to talk about it so what would be your one snippet that you would pass on to
0: a future generation yeah. Well, just a couple of thoughts before I give you my answer. Um, Robert Heinlein wrote a story about, um, a uh, advanced extraterrestrial civilization that blows up a planet just for fun and then suddenly realizes there might've been living creatures on it. And they, so they go down and they search through the dust, uh, and they only find one thing, uh, and they take it home and it's, it turns out to be a can of film, you know, a, a, <laughs> a movie. And, um, they think the, the they think the um, creatures that lived on this planet had really interesting capabilities of, of uh, bending the laws of physics. And it, there's only a few words on the film, which they never translate at the end. And the words are a Walt Disney production. <laughs> <laughs> so they're watching Mickey Mouse, basically, <laughs> or Tom and Jerry, or something like that. Um, <laughs> it's quite it's quite a nice uh, sort of. Uh, way, uh, of, of, thinking about it. Um, I think my answer is, well, I've thought about this and I would like, to, I would like three answers, but you're not going to let me have three.
1: answers. No, you, 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 go anywhere you want with this. I'm just very interested to hear what you have to say about all of it. So <laughs> but, I, don't, I, I won't
0: hold you to anything. On the one hand, I would like to say evolution by natural selection, the idea of bottom up spontaneous order, the idea of emerging complexity from nothing. Uh, the idea that all you need is de- variation and selection, and you get, uh, you can get uh, order, and and in a sense, this is one of the few ideas that sort of petered through from a previous civilization that was destroyed, because this is exactly what Lucretius writes about rather beautifully in his um, uh, poem De rerum natura, um, around the time of Cicero and Caesar, um, and which gets suppressed by the christian civilization that comes along afterwards every copy burned and till they, many many centuries later one is found in a german monastery uh, and um is gradually pieced together and and this becomes an incredibly influential essay on the enlightenment uh people like thomas thomas jefferson had i can't remember how many copies of this essay in different translations etc you know they were just just an example of a very important um uh insight. Okay. Um, but then I can't leave out the double helix and genetic code. The, the fact that yeah. at the at the heart of all life is a linear digital code, a simple piece of um, information. That's the difference between living things and non-living things. I would love to tell future civilizations about that. So I think what I'm going to do is combine those two ideas <laughs> in a, together with a third one and say that what I would really like to tell uh, uh, whoever finds this remnant of our civilization uh, is that life, living things, and technology, the things we make, are all in the same business. And that business is making order out of disorder, making improbable but useful structures and, in order to do so, calling upon supplies of energy. and the more energy you call upon, the more improbability and complexity you can produce. that take that that explains evolution. Um, it sort of explains genetics, and it actually takes in engineering and technology, too. It's quite a long sentence that, and I apologize <laughs> for that, but it, it was okay. uh, that would be my answer. So, the second law of thermodynamics and how life and technology get round it. Yeah. No, I mean, well, and that makes sense.
1: I mean, that's how your book begins with the second law of thermodynamics, which I find... Steven Pinker once wrote... There's a website called Verge. I think it's called Verge. And uh, they went it, around asking... The Edge. Oh, The Edge. That's what it is. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm not actually dyslex- dyslexic when I read, but I am dyslexic about... The things I remember and i don't think uh, that was his exit. that was associational um perhaps perhaps it was um but he they asked a bunch of different experts what's the one idea you wish people understood more which is sort of similar to the Feynman thing yeah and he did a wonderful one on the second law of thermodynamics and which I think has much more bearing on I mean it's it's sort of a sub theme of my my most recent book is that that you know, the civilization that we have around us is essentially unnatural. And so it takes work to keep it going, Yeah, right? Because exactly. otherwise it wants, exactly. you know, nature wants to claw it back. And yep. um, and anyway, I, I I think it would help people a great deal to think more about, you know, how the second law of thermodynamics applies
0: to all sorts of things outside of just science, you know, yep. or a science John, test. John and leader Cosmides, wrote an essay once that the, the title of which was the second law of thermodynamics is the first law of psychology. I think it was making a similar point to the one you just made. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and actually, Tooby did a, a
1: essay in that series that was also hugely influential on me about the coalition instinct, which is this thing that explains right. why groups are it can be internally inconsistent and not and be blind to it um, because once you're part of the in group, um, you. Can see the hypocrisy or the inconsistencies of other groups, but you become uh, numb to it in your own group. And I think that explains a lot of our politics these days. But It certainly um,
0: does. It certainly does. Yeah. So
1: I was just wondering, one, one last train of thought. Um, what do you make of this stuff that Andrew McAfee writes about, our mutual friend Ron Bailey has written about? It. About the dematerialization of our economies, um, we're basically just, for the first time in all of human history, economic output has been essentially decoupled from uh, resource allocation, which is kind of amazing. Um, we're the the physical weight of our economy is shrinking, not growing, even though we're getting richer. Um, what do you make about all of that? And is is that perhaps another example of why it's a maybe a good thing that we've hit a sort of a a plateau on the transportation and heavy equipment innovation stuff or not?
0: Actually, yeah, that last point I hadn't thought of, but but I think that the more from less stuff is great. I think it's really Mm -hmm. interesting, very important. And it's a huge answer to the line that you often hear from environmentalists and that gets a cheer whenever they say it, which is you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. Uh, or it cannot have infinite growth with finite resources. Well, yes, you can if growth means using fewer resources to achieve the same ends, and mm-hmm. we're doing that. We're using 13% as much aluminum in a drinks can as we did uh, 20 years ago. Uh, we're using less steel per building, less steel per car, less water per crop plant in agriculture, less land per, food, per amount, quantity of food, um, dramatically so, 68% less land to produce a given quantity of food compared with 50 years, years ago. You know, uh, enormous improvements. And until recently, those reductions were absorbed in the fact that we then went out and used more stuff anyway. And this is known as Jevons's paradox, um, that if you make uh, electricity cheaper, people leave the lights on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) as it were (laughs) you know you just become less frugal in your use of it so you end up using more anyway and that was true for a lot of things but if you think about the LED light that has replaced the incandescent bulb and which on average uses about 20% as much electricity that means I've got to leave my lights on five times as long in my Mm -hmm. house I think or was it four times as long my arithmetic's not very good here. Thank you, Nick, at five, I think, yeah. <laughs> um, in order to be using more electricity than I was in the past. Now, I'm mm-hmm. l- easily liable to leave it on one and a half times or twice as long, but I don't think I'm ever going to leave it on five times as long. That's one of the reasons electricity demand actually has gone up a lot slower than people thought, because the, the, because the, the, the demand for lighting is shrinking quite fast. Um, so actually, I think we have at last got past the Jevons paradox and into real gross, uh, uh, yeah, no, no, into real net savings uh, mm-hmm. rather than just gross ones. Um, and uh, and the, you know, McAfee has written about this brilliantly, and I think I think it's a really interesting insight. And I hadn't, I hadn't heard. I mean, I do mention it in my book, but I hadn't heard about the fact that we are not just using less stuff per head in the mm-hmm. American economy and the British economy now, but that we're using less stuff overall uh, right. in those economies. Now, t- you've got to take into account that we've exported some of the stuff-making to China, uh, but I think, you can, I think that is taken into account in these calculations.
1: Yeah, now, McAfee at least says, and I have no reason to doubt him, that he takes into account in the drop-off of a lot of commodities including trade, including the fact that, you know, this stuff comes from another place and all of that, um, which is just, it's just an amazing thing. Um, uh, so you wrote a rational optimist. I used to work for a guy named Ben Wattenberg. I used to know Julian Simon a good deal. Um, and this whole dematerialization thing is sort of yep. chapter seven of the, of, of his famous bet with Paul Ehrlich about whether the prices of commodities would go down. Over a my decade. left
0: shoulder is the Julian Simon Award, made of the five metals in the bet, which I'm very. Oh, proud is that right? Of. That's awesome. <laughs>
1: <if I> can, <coughs> and actually,
0: quite
1: Julian, si- Julian Simon was a great example of what we were talking about earlier. He, his sort of, you mentioned Jared Diamond. I mean, uh, Julian Simon was a direct male
0: not a, a male marketing
1: guy or something like oh, that. Yeah, right?
0: yeah, you're right. There was something like that. Yes.
1: And then he was just sort of became this resource economist. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, all the elite types all hated him is because he was just this, this poser, not poser, this sort of interloper from, you know, the non rarified world of higher education from and the real world, from the real world. Yeah. Um, but um, so you know, make the case for some, I'm sure you get asked this constantly. Uh, make the case for some optimism uh, during these fairly gloomy times. And particularly, I, I always tell people I basically have the Matt Ridley position on, on climate change. Um, um, uh, so if you could also include that in reasons for optimism, that would right. be helpful. Because that's, that's the—I recently did some stuff on eschatology. That is, for a lot of people— the key
0: driver of the end times is is the climate change. change. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, Well, um, it's 10 years since the Rational Optimist came out. I've been around the world talking about it in that time pretty well every year. And every year there's always been a reason for somebody to say, you surely can't still be optimistic after what's happened this year. Whether it was (laughs) the great financial crisis, the Euro crisis, the Ukraine war, the Syria war, um, uh, some aspect of climate change that had hit the news uh, droughts, floods—something happening in the world every year. There's been a reason to say, uh, "You, you must be wrong." Now you, you've got to admit it's getting worse. Um, and this one's a big one—the pandemic. But right. it's even at its worst, it's not going to wipe out uh, a significant percentage of the population like the 1918 flu did. Uh, it's not going to. Uh, it it may do huge damage to politics. And to economics, and it may throw a lot of people out of work, but it's not going to, in itself, undermine the process by which we create wealth. Now, how we get put that process back together again uh, is is an issue, um, uh, but uh, I see no reason why that is 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 going to prevent us. Uh, go- I've just been looking very hard at the 1890 uh, Russian flu uh, pandemic. Um, which very few people know about. But the reason it's interesting is it might have been a coronavirus, we now think, one which we now have Mm. and which circulates in our uh, societies as the commonest of the the common colds that's caused by coronavirus. Um, But it was pretty nasty when it first arrived, and the genetic evidence suggests it first arrived in our species in 1890, which is when there was this terrible pandemic. And that killed, you know... A lot of people it killed a million people, which was more than this has killed, and a hugely much greater proportion of the world population then than this has killed do you do you think of the of eighteen ninety as the beginning of the end of the world? No, you think of it as the beginning of the beginning of the world, and mm-hmm. likewise, I think this century will see us uh, go on to great strides. What about climate change? Um, uh, yes, it's a real issue. yes, climate is changing yes, yes, we're responsible. yes, it's possible that it will be pretty disastrous. But if you look at the actual prognostications based on realistic assessments of uh, the sensitivity of the climate to carbon, realistic estimates of what we're going to do to our energy uses, not to extreme scenarios, uh, and you ignore the sort of ludicrous exaggerations that's coming out from Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and people like that, you know, if you look at what the scientists are actually saying, then uh, you you end up saying it might prevent some of the enrichment that is inevitably coming our way. The numbers, just to put put it uh, at its most basic, are that the the, the worst that can happen is that instead of being 450% richer on average in 2100, we will be 430% richer in 2100. Now, that's a big difference, but it's not exactly... Misery for everyone, let alone extinction and cannibalism, which is what I mm-hmm. had to put up with when last time I debated a, a, an activist on the radio about this who said, within 10 years, we'll all be eating each other. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't spring out of any scientific scenario you see. So, uh, and, and if we don't get 430% richer, then we're not going to produce enough carbon dioxide to create the warming. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they've got a chicken and egg problem here. They're saying we're going to get so much richer that we're going to create much carbon dioxide, which is going to damage uh, our civilization and the planet itself. Now, there's a lot of other things we should be worried about, like coral reefs and ice caps uh, uh, along the way. Uh, But again, uh, we are seeing warming happening much slower than predicted in 1990 when this whole thing began. Uh, Because we were then told, and the word used was predict, it wasn't just a scenario, uh, that we would see 0.3 degrees of warming per decade, um, it's p- three, de- 0.3 degrees centigrade per decade going forward. Well, we've now had 30 of those years. We've had three of those decades. The average so far, if you take the surface temperature data, is about 0.15 per decade, so half as much. Mm-hmm. And if you take the satellite data, it's even less. It's 0.12. Uh, That's even below the range we were told it was going to be in, in 1990. We were told it would be 0.2 to 0.5 with a best estimate of 0.3 per decade. It's been much less than that. Now they can say, well, it's going to accelerate uh, shortly, um, but so far there's no evidence of that. So I'm pretty persuaded that when I come back on your show, age 92 in (laughs) 2050, um, that I will be able to say, what was all the fuss about about climate change yes climate has continued to change uh but a it wasn't as bad as we thought and b uh we've cracked it with new technologies we're using so much fusion power and hydro- and natural gas that we don't use coal anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. so um that's my um, my uh, climate No, that was, great. that was great i mean i mean i,
1: I personally am a fan of more innovation in geoengineering that, you know, that we should come up with some break glass in case of emergency ways of using a different kind of man-made climate change to cool the planet if we need to, whether it's particles released in the stratosphere or whatever. Uh, You know, I I do worry about the
0: oceans. Being a biologist, I like the idea of greening the Sahara or fertilizing the ocean better than this physics stuff in space. I'm a little bit worried about putting umbrellas in between us and the sun. I think that that could go wrong. No, no. I, I'm
1: with you. I'd I, I like to think about it. You know, I'd like to learn yeah, more about I agree. it.
0: And, um,
1: but I love the fertilizing the ocean stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that's really fascinating. I have so many more things we could talk to you about, but I know you have got another I schlep go. to a different chair for a different book book tour interview. Thank you so much for coming back and I uh, hope to have you on before 2050 when you're 92.
0: Jonah, thank you so much. Enjoyed it.
1: Okay. So Matt is gone. And uh, I didn't get to repeat the name of his book. It's how innovation works. Um, I should actually give you the whole thing. It's how innovation works and why it flourishes in freedom. And um, as you can tell, I'm still kind of a fanboy about Matt Ridley. Um, I was very excited to see you guys can't see because you're uh, you're not blind, but you're just listening to a podcast. Uh, in the bookshelf behind him were. Uh, I could see copy of my first book, uh, sitting there, which was kind of cool. Um, sort of like, a, um, Scott Emmergood, our friend from Ricochet, who's the producer of the GLOP podcast. He once sent me a picture from Tom Wolfe's house where he had a dog-eared copy of liberal fascism sitting on his desk, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so anyway, uh, there was other stuff I would love to have talked to him about, uh, but he had to go. He's he. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll see he's been doing just an incredible run of uh, podcast and virtual appearances for his book tour. Um, it is a great book, and you could. So you may have noticed, by the way, that we don't have we didn't have an advertiser today. Uh, Caleb, the producer, just explained to me that's because the way advertisers book or buy slots, or whatever, there's a lag time. And so the like six weeks ago or a month ago uh, when they would have been buying for these slots um, was at the heart of the, the pandemic panic and no one knew how to advertise or if they should advertise. So they just pulled all their ads. And it's actually kind of when you think about it, it's a neat illustration of the lag effect of so much of the pandemic stuff. You know, the, the data on hospitalizations and deaths and, and new cases and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of like the light you see from a star. Um, You know, the light that hits your eye now left that star, you know, tens of thousands or millions of years ago, depending on how far away it is. Um, The data that we get today on all these websites, tracking stuff is um, from essentially from two weeks ago in terms of what the facts on the ground are, are, And, uh, and the same thing goes for advertisements on this podcast. Anyway, just a rambling thing. Um, so, uh, anyway, if, you know, speaking of advertising, if you decide to buy, uh, Matt Ridley's book, which I, I really recommend that you do, um, it would be great for us if you would go on Twitter and say, you know, Hey, I just bought, Matt Ridley's book because I heard him on the Remnant and use our our Twitter handle which is at Jonah Remnant. Um, Twitter by the way is just an unbelievable cesspool for me for the last couple of days because uh, um, I dared criticize Kaylee McEnany or whatever her name is, the White House press secretary, and um, I guess I had not fully appreciated that she is the new It Girl of MAGA world and um, not that it changes my opinion at all, but uh, it has been a fire hose of sewage um, and has turned me pretty sour on Twitter. These things happen kind of reminds me of some other episodes that I've been through, but anyway um, one must persevere. So anyway, if you can uh, give a plug to the remnant um, about our advertisers, about our guests, that's all good for us. Um, we only do it if it's true, but, It would be helpful for us, and it helps us promote, helps us get guests like Matt Ridley back on. And um, uh, I guess that's all I've got. So um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. This is a podcast.